Lord, we pray your, your blessing upon your word this morning as we open it up and look at it and pray, Father, that you'd feed us so that we would have the nourishment and fuel that we need to work and to serve you actively. And so come Holy Spirit and do that for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 11, we're going to look at 29 to 36. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet no sign is going to be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. <clears throat> when your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Now, two Sundays ago, we studied Luke 11, verses 14 to 28. And in that study, we saw that there was a demon-possessed man that came into the vicinity of where Jesus was. And this demon caused the man to be mute. He couldn't speak. Perhaps he could grunt and groan and make sounds, but he couldn't make any articulate sounds. He was unintelligible. And so Jesus cast out the spirit, and immediately that man was able to speak. And it shocked everybody. Everybody was marveling that this man just a few minutes ago, all he could do was make some grunts, and now he's communicating just as well as anybody else could. So when that took place, there was, there was two responses of the religious leaders. Verse 15 of Luke 11 says that some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That was one response. The reason Jesus is able to cast out that spirit is because he's doing it by the power of Satan. Beelzebul is just a nickname for Satan. He has Satan in him, and that's why he's able to do this. <clears throat> the other response is verse 16. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. So part of the people said, he's able to do that because he has the power of Satan in him. The other said, we, you must right now give us a sign from heaven. They're demanding a sign in order to test him. Now, Jesus answers the first accusation that he's doing this by the power of Satan. He answers that accusation in verses 17 to 22. And he shows how ridiculous it is for them to even say that. But now, in our study today, he comes back to the other response, which is they were demanding this sign from heaven, and he confronts that spirit that is in these religious leaders, and that's what he's talking about here in verses 29 to 36. Now notice in verse 29 
that it was as the crowds were increasing. So the crowds are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They're, they're vast. People are coming from all over because they want to see the miracles. They want to see the healings. They've heard, I mean, it, like wildfire, the stories of what Jesus is doing has been going throughout all of Palestine. And so the people are coming from everywhere wanting to see him and wanting to see what he's doing. So the crowds are increasing. But, you know, in a church, whenever the crowds get big, the temptation is always to tone down the harsher parts of the gospel in order to keep the people coming. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was never concerned about rocking the boat. He was never concerned about saying something that might offend somebody as long as it was God's truth. He's, John the Baptist was a lot like that true too, wasn't he? John the Baptist, you know, would, would say things like, you snakes, why did you come out here? Are you trying to f just fleeing from the wrath to come? And Jesus would just take whatever error there was and he would just go head on with it. And so rather than being a man pleaser, as soon as these crowds are increasing, he opens his mouth and he says, this generation is a wicked generation. What a sermon intro, right? <laughs> you have this giant church. Everyone's coming to your church and you open your mouth and say, all you guys, you're a wicked generation. You're not going to keep people too well that way. But like I said, Jesus was never concerned about keeping crowds. Never. In fact, in another place in Luke chapter 9, when the crowds are increasing again, he turns around and he says, unless you hate your mother and your father, your brothers, sisters, your wife and your children, you can't be my disciple. He purposely tries to thin out the crowds. He's not happy about having a big crowd of people if the quality of the people following him was substandard. Jesus is concerned about whole soul commitment to himself. So here... He has this great vast crowd following him. He opens his mouth, and the first words out of his mouth are, this generation is a wicked generation. Now, isn't that kind of strange to think about? <clears throat> think about the generation Jesus is talking to, and then look, think about our generation. Jesus is speaking to a moral generation. They're moral people. They are intent on keeping the Ten Commandments. Right, you have, you have people that are living in that generation that are sincerely seeking to keep God's law. They're also religious. They're very punctilious about keeping all the Sabbath days and the feasts and the festivals and observing the rites that are in the law of God. So when you consider their generation to our generation, you, you think they're far more godly, far more moral, far more religious than what we see around us today, aren't they? So if he told them, this generation is a wicked generation, what would he say to our generation today? This generation is a super wicked generation, is probably what he would say. People in our day are calling good evil and evil good, aren't they? Just think about the sexual sin in America. People call that good, and they call evil bad. So he calls them a, a wicked generation. Now, why were they wicked in the eyes of Jesus Christ? That's what we need to think about. Why were they a wicked generation? They were a wicked generation because of their willful unbelief. They had all the light 
that they needed? All the evidence that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel that they needed? They had all the proof, the evidence, the signs were all there. But in spite of all that, they willfully chose not to follow Christ, not to come to Christ, not to repent of their sins and lay down their lives in His service. They chose not to do that. Now when we think about wickedness, we, we normally don't think about unbelief, I wouldn't say. When you think about something that's wicked, do you think about someone who doesn't believe as the chiefest of sins? Normally I don't. I think about murder, rape, horrible violence against other people, maybe certain sexual sins, embezzlement perhaps, but I normally would not think at the front of my mind that unbelief would take the cake when it comes to the, the sins that are wicked in the eyes of God. But that's the sin that Jesus is identifying in this passage as marking out this generation as an especially wicked generation. Think about John 16 with me. In verses 8 and 9, uh, Jesus said, when the Comforter comes, the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And He's convict, going to convict the world of sin, because why? Do you remember? Because they don't believe in Jesus. That's the sin the Holy Spirit is going to especially convict the world of. The sin of unbelief. And over in John 3.18, Jesus says, He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So there Jesus is saying that judgment will come upon those who don't believe. In other words, unbelief is, is a culpable sin. It's blameworthy. It's something that will cause you to be judged unless you turn from that unbelief and actually trust Christ. Now, this morning... As we make our way through this text, we're going to see two things about unbelief. Number one, the wickedness of unbelief. Number two, the danger. First the wickedness, then the danger of unbelief. And unbelief, according to Jesus, is wicked because it always requires more proof, because it keeps us from coming to Christ, and it keeps us from repenting of sin. And then unbelief is dangerous because it will blind us to the truth, and it will condemn us at the final judgment. Those are the things that come out of this text. So let's take a look at them in more detail. First of all, the wickedness of unbelief. Number one, it always requires more proof. Look at verse 29. This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. You see that? The reason why it's wicked is because it keeps seeking after more signs. And yet no sign is going to be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. Now does this mean that they hadn't received any signs? Remember that an, a sign is an attesting miracle. Some miraculous deed that Jesus would have done in order to attest to who he is. Has Jesus done anything like that so far? Oh, yeah. He's healed every kind of disease. 
He's healed people that were paralyzed from birth or blind from birth or couldn't hear, couldn't speak. And he's made it so that they can see and speak and hear, right? He's cast out demons all throughout the land of Israel. He's walked on water. He's multiplied fish and loaves. He's commanded storms to be still, to hush. He's just talked to them, hush, be still. And they obeyed his voice. He's raised people from the dead. I would say that those, those are some signs, wouldn't you? So here they want more of them. They're not content with the evidence and the proof that Jesus has already given them. They're demanding more signs. And that's what willful unbelief will do. It's never content with the proof that has been given to it already. It always demands more signs in order to believe. Now, think about this with me. Why did they claim that Jesus was doing these miraculous works by the power of the devil? They said he's casting out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They couldn't contest the fact that he had done miracles. They never, they never argued that. They never said, oh, that's just sleight of hand. Anybody can do that. No, they knew. Everybody knew that the things Jesus was doing were genuine miracles. Nobody could debate that. Everybody saw it with their own eyes. He did it in front of multitudes of people. So they couldn't debate that. But here's the thing. Either Jesus was doing these things by the power of God or by the power of Satan. There's only two different powers. But if they said he's doing it by the power of God, that would mean that they were going to have to accept his message. And what was Jesus' message towards the religious leaders of his day? We find that we haven't got there yet, but verses 37 to 54 of this very chapter, he's going to tell us what his message is towards religious leaders. He's going to call them hypocrites and blind guides of the blind. And he's going to say they're whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but they're filthy on the inside. They're like a used coffee cup, all dirty on the inside, but nice and clean on the outside. That they were self-righteous. That they wouldn't humble themselves before God and seek his forgiveness. So this is the message he gave about the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers of his day. So, either they said, yes, your miracles are of God, and we're going to have to bow to the message that you bring and accept it, or they're going to have to come up with some other reason Jesus was able to do miracles. And they couldn't accept the teaching of Jesus because that would mean that they were wrong. That would mean that their whole religion was wrong. Their whole approach to God was wrong. And they were unwilling to repent and humble themselves. And so that's why they said, he's doing these miracles by the power of the devil, Beelzebul. And that's why they kept demanding more signs. They couldn't be content with the signs that he had given. They had to have more and more and more. Now, notice what Jesus tells him in verse 29. He says, no sign is going to be given this generation except for the sign of Jonah. I'm not going to give you any more signs. You've had enough. You've had plenty of signs. More signs than you need to make up your mind that I am from God. So I'm not going to give you more signs except for one. And there's coming one more sign. It's the sign of Jonah. 
For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, what was the sign of Jonah? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. There is a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12. So let's go over there for just a few minutes. In that passage, Jesus also talks about the sign of Jonah. Okay, Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of the son of Jonah the prophet. For, explaining the sign of Jonah the prophet, for, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish. It was, he was as good as dead, wasn't he? But yet, after three days, that fish vomited, out, vomited him out on dry land, and he went from the place of death to the place of life. And he says, that's the sign of Jonah. And there's a parallel in what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be three days and three nights where? In the heart of the earth. And just as Jonah came forth from that place of death, so too it's implied here that I too will be brought forth from the heart of the earth, the place of death. In other words, he's talking about his resurrection from the dead. And he says, that's the final sign I'm giving to this generation. But isn't the resurrection of Jesus Christ enough really, to convince anybody that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Wouldn't that be enough? It should be. I mean, if, if months ahead of time, somebody said, I'm going to die, and, and, and gives details about how he's going to die, which Jesus did on more than one occasion. Months ahead of time. And then those details came true, where he's actually crucified by the religious leaders of his day. They him, gave him over to the Romans who crucified him. And then three days later, his tomb is found empty, and this man, who is dead, appears to his disciples on many occasions, showing himself alive. you think that'd be enough to convince anybody that, yes, he is who he claimed to be. It's only due to the wickedness of man's natural depraved heart that the resurrection of Jesus Christ will not convince him. You know, the resurrection is one of the most well-attested miracles that has ever taken place. People have tried to destroy it. They've tried to come up with reasons why it can't be true, and none of them hold water. We don't have time to go into all those reasons this morning, but maybe on another occasion we can. Uh, it's a well-attested, miraculous sign that Jesus gave to the generation of his day, but yet it did not lead to wholesale conversion amongst the Jewish people. There was only a remnant of the Jewish people that believed on Jesus as their Messiah, in spite of the resurrection from the dead. And the reason why is because they deliberately chose not to believe in him. Now when Jesus talks about that wicked generation, he's talking about mainly the religious leaders of that generation. He's not talking about the, the riffraff, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. He's talking about the religious elite. And we know that because right after this passage, he goes on to address them in verses 37 to 52. 
He's talking about the lawyers, the Pharisees, and the scribes in particular. <clears throat> These are the ones that willfully chose that they would not believe in him and they would not surrender their lives to him. So, why is unbelief wicked? It's wicked because it always requires more proof. Just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were never content. Even when he told them that he was going to rise from the dead and then did it, they would not surrender to him. Remember, they even told the soldiers to come up with this tale that uh, the disciples had come and stolen the body. A deliberate lie to try to cover up the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it always requires more proof. Secondly, it's wicked because it keeps people from coming to Christ. Notice verse 31. The queen of the south, that's actually the queen of Sheba. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Do you guys remember this story from the Old Testament? I believe it's 1 Kings 10, but don't quote me on that because that's just from memory. But this is the story in the Old Testament where this woman, the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, traveled all the way to Israel because she had heard of the wisdom that Solomon had, and she wanted to hear it for herself. Now, most scholars believe that this is Arabia, southern Arabia, or present-day Yemen today. And so I went on Google Maps and I wanted to find out how far, how many miles Yemen is from Israel. And I found out it's about 1,900 miles. Now in a day when you did not have cars and you didn't have airplanes where you would either have to walk or ride on camels or something like that, you could maybe go 25 miles a day. So it's going to take two and a half to three months for this queen. This is no commoner. This is no peasant making this trip. <laughs> this is the queen of this particular region. And she's traveling up to three months just to get to Israel so that she could hear the wisdom of Solomon. So what's Jesus' point? This queen was willing to go to great sacrifice in order just to come and hear Solomon's wisdom. And yet you've got somebody in your very midst that's infinitely greater than Solomon. Jesus is the wisdom of God personified. Colossians 2.3 says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's right there in their midst, and yet people are not coming to hear his spiritual wisdom from God. They're coming to get healed. They're coming to see miracles. They're coming to get fed from the loaves and the fishes. They're not coming to him like she came to Solomon to hear his wisdom. They're not coming for the spiritual truths that utter forth from his mouth. So they're not coming to him in faith. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There's the command of God. You see, unbelief, willful unbelief, is wicked because it causes people to disobey the very command of Christ, which is to come to him. People won't come. They won't come in faith to Jesus because of willful unbelief. Okay, so let's review. Unbelief is wicked because it's always demanding more proof. It's also wicked because it keeps us from coming to Jesus Christ in faith. And then number three, it keeps us from repenting of sin.
Look at verse 32. Not only the queen of the south, now he gives another illustration. The men of Nineveh. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now go back in your mind to the book of Jonah. God sent this prophet Jonah to the Ninevites. They were Assyrians. They're some of the most barbaric and violent men that you can imagine. They would actually would take prisoners and they would, they would skin them alive. They would impale them and put them up on poles to, to die very slow, lingering deaths. I mean, they're some of the most vicious and cruel men who have ever lived. Enemies of Israel. And it's no wonder that Jonah didn't want to go preach to them because he knew God was loving and forgiving and he would forgive their sins if they repented. So he didn't want to go. That's why he started going down to, uh, to Tarshish to get away from God. But God was not going to allow this rebellious prophet. And so he caused a, wish, a fish to swallow him, take him back to the shore, vomit him out. And so Jonah finally has been made willing. And so then he marches up to Nineveh to do the Lord's bidding. <clears throat> When he gets there, he gives him an, an eight-word sermon. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's not one word about God's mercy if they repent. All he tells them is they've got forty days, and God's going to wipe this whole city out. And with that eight-word message, the whole people of Nineveh, from the king all the way down to the, the most common person, repents in sackcloth and ashes, and they, they start fasting, thinking that maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will have mercy on us if we cry out to Him in our humility, and if we repent. And that's exactly what God does. God has mercy on the whole city, and He spares the entire people because they repent. This is Jesus' analogy. He says, the men of Nineveh, they're going to stand up at the judgment, and they're going to condemn you. Because they were willing to repent quickly when all they had was this little message, not even offering any hope or mercy. And here I've come and I'm offering you mercy from God and yet you're not repenting. So the Ninevites, they're going to stand up at the judgment and they're going to condemn you because they had far less privilege than you and yet they repented. They were quick to repent. And yet you have all this privilege because I'm right in your midst preaching repentance and you're not repenting. Do you, do you see the parallels? Okay. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you'll perish. He said that to the people of his own day. And impenitence is wicked because it causes us to refuse to submit our lives to Jesus Christ as our rightful Lord and Master. That's why it's so wicked. Repentance means turning around and going in a new direction, but we refuse. We won't do it. And it's wicked because it is saying no to the claims of Jesus as Lord, and I'll do what I want, thank you very much. Just stay out of my life. Yeah, I'll believe on you as my Savior, but I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. That's a wicked thing. It's willful unbelief that causes a person to choose not to repent.
and bow to Jesus Christ. So these are the three things, these are the three things that make unbelief so wicked. It's always demanding more proof. It causes us not to come to Christ and it causes us not to repent. Now let's look at why it's so dangerous. And there's two reasons why willful unbelief is so dangerous. First of all, because it will blind us to the truth. And that's what he's doing there in verses 33 to 36. You might think, what's this whole thing about a lamp and, and a clear or a bad eye? What has that got to do with anything he just said? Well, it's intricately tied into what he's just said. Let's go through it a little bit. Verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, if we lived in a day with no electricity, and we either had to have oil lamps or candles to light our house, would you take a candle and light it and go down, put it in your cellar, put it down in your cellar, and then come back up the stairs to live in darkness? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Or would you light that candle and then put a basket over the top? Of, of course not. Why would you even light it to begin with if you're going to put a basket over the top? See, Jesus is the light of the world. He's the lamp that he's talking about. And he came into the world to shed light on his generation, on all the people. And so he brought the teaching of God to the people. He brought the truth, which is just like, it's like light. It lit up that world. He didn't put the truth of God down in a cellar. And he didn't put a basket over the truth. He exposed the truth of God to all the people. He went about from one city and village to the next, preaching the kingdom of God and telling people about the Father, telling them how they could be saved through repentance and faith. So he put the light on a lampstand, didn't he? The problem comes in verses 34 and 35. <clears throat> he said, the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If Jesus Christ and his preaching is the lamp that brings forth all this light, then what is he talking about when he talks about the eye? Right? Our eye is the organ that lets in this light, isn't it? And we can either have a bad eye or a clear eye. If you have a clear eye, light's going to flood and fill up your, your body and it's going to fill up your life. If you have a bad eye, maybe you have cataracts over your eyes, or you're blinded, or your eyes are diseased. If any of those things is true, then light can't get in through your eye and you can't perceive reality around you, right? Jesus is saying, my teaching, my preaching, is, is the light. But the problem is, you guys are blind. It does no good to turn up the light if somebody's blind, does it? You can turn it up as much as you want to, and it doesn't help them at all. They're blind to that truth. They've got a bad eye, a diseased eye. And here, when Jesus talks about a bad eye, he's talking about an unbelieving heart. The religious leaders of his day were stuck in willful unbelief. Their hearts would not believe. And so they have this eye that won't allow this light in. They're blind. It, to tell them, for a blind man to tell you, oh, just turn up the light, 
It's kind of like these religious leaders demanding more signs. Just give us more signs. That's all we need. But it won't do any good if they're already blind. And they were blinded to truth because of a willful choice to walk down this road of unbelief. And that's why he says in verse 35, watch out. Here's a warning to the religious leaders. Watch out that the light that is in you is not darkness. You think you have all this light? You see, they said that they were uh, the teachers of those in darkness. That's what they called themselves. Read Romans chapter 2. They were a light to the blind. He says, watch out that the light that you think you've got inside of you is not just darkness. And now, we've seen what happens with a bad eye. Notice what happens with a good eye, a clear eye in verse 36. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. So if you have a believing heart, then all the light from God can flood your life and it can transform your life with truth and with light, just like it does here in verse 36. Do you remember when Jesus is confronting the religious leaders in Matthew 23? He calls them hypocrites over and over and over. Well, there's another thing he calls them there. He calls them blind. Let me just show that to you in Matthew 23. There's five different times in that one chapter he tells them that they're blind. Okay, starting in verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Then verse 19, you blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? And then if you were to go down to verse 24, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Or verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. So over and over and over, he's saying you guys are blind. You're blind. He says it does no good for a blind man to lead a blind man. They're both going to fall into a pit. And that was the condition of the religious leaders. They were blind because they had chosen not to believe in Jesus Christ. Willful unbelief has started leading them down this path. Now, would you go over to John chapter 12 for just a moment? This is important. <clears throat> You see, they had partial blindness. They had a bad eye, a diseased eye. But he's saying, watch out. Watch out. Because if you continue walking down this particular road, it's going to result in total blindness, judicial blindness from God, where you will not be able to see and you will not be able to say, be saved. And that's what he's saying in John chapter 12. Look at verse 30, 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. 
This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. Now notice three statements. Verse 36, he says in verse 36, Believe in the light. So there's a command to exercise faith. I'm the light, believe in the light. Verse 37, what does it say about what they were actually doing? Yeah, it says they were not believing in Him. He commands them to believe in Him. They chose not to believe in Him. And then notice the result in verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe in Him. Why? Because God hardened their hearts. Verse 40. Jesus commanded them to believe. They chose not to believe. And so God, in the end, brought this judicial blindness upon them where they couldn't even believe anymore, and they were lost forever. God hardened their hearts just like he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And they were lost. That's a scary thing, isn't it? That if someone continues down a path over and over and over, they may get to the point where God just says, okay, you're not going to be able to believe anymore. He gives them over to their sin. They're blinded judicially, and they just go on the rest of their life in willful unbelief. It reminds me of another passage over in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, where Paul is describing the man of sin. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. See, there it is again. They did not believe, they would not believe, and so at some point God brings this deluding influence upon them so that they can't believe, and they perish. I mean, we, we, we love John 3.16, but this is another side of God that we need to grapple with. God will not be trifled with. And if people, like the people of Jesus' day, just continue refusing, refusing, refusing over and over, in spite of all the light that Jesus had given to them, they just brush it aside and demand more signs and say, you're doing this by the power of the devil. Watch out. Watch out that the light that is in you may not become darkness and you be thoroughly blinded so you can't see it all anymore. So that's the danger of unbelief. It blinds us to the truth. And I would just, let me just pause right now to anybody who may not have given their life to Jesus Christ. Watch out that you don't go on day after day after day persisting in that. You don't know. If you continued to persist in unbelief and refuse to give your life to Christ, you don't know whether at some point the Lord's just going to say, okay, forget it. You've had your chance, no more. You're blind. You're lost. Don't go on in unrepentance when the Lord's calling you.
Submit your life and submit your heart to Him. So that's the first reason it's so dangerous. Secondly, unbelief will condemn us at the judgment. And we find that back in Luke 11. In verse 31, the Queen of the South is going to rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn them. And do you think that the Queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh are going to condemn that generation, but, but God is not? No, God is going to confirm their condemnation of that generation because of willful unbelief that they persisted in. So unbelief brings eternal damnation. That's why it's so dangerous. It brings blindness in this life and eternal damnation in the next life. And unbelief is so dangerous because it is the seed out of which all the other sins in our life will proceed, if you think about that. All the other sins that we commit proceed because of unbelief. We don't hold on to God's promises and God's truth. You can probably identify any sin you commit by thinking about what, what truth about God was I not believing when I committed that sin. It reminds me of the four G's that we, three years ago, we were studying the four G's. God is great, God is gracious, God is good, and God is glorious. And whenever we sin, you can almost always trace it back. You weren't believing one of those four things about God. So it's the seed out of which all other sins proceed, and faith is that grace out of which all other good fruit proceeds. You can trace all of the other good fruits in your life back to faith, faith in Jesus Christ. So let's draw some practical application then from this, this message. We have three examples here that I want to point your attention to. Two of them are good examples, one of them is bad. First of all, the example of the Queen of Sheba. I want you to think about her, her example. She was willing to travel three months to get to Solomon and then three months to get back home. Six months of her life she spent just traveling because she yearned to hear the wisdom that fell from Solomon's lips. She's a good example because we have much greater wisdom in this book given to us by God do we have the same spiritual hunger for the wisdom that comes from God's Word that even the Queen of Sheba had? Or do we let our Bible lie around collecting dust and by the time we look at it again, the whole front cover is dusty? You know, what, how great is our spiritual hunger for God's truth? That's one thing that we can ask ourselves this morning. The fact that we have a Bible... We, we just sort of take that for granted. You know, we shouldn't do that. For three quarters of the history of the Christian church, they, did, they couldn't do this. The printing press wasn't even invented until about 1450 A.D. So that means from, from the time of Jesus to 1450, nobody except for the very wealthy or those who were the uh, religious leaders of the churches had access to the copies of the Scripture. It would be very rare for an ordinary Christian to have a Bible. Very rare. Because they had to be hand-copied. And it would take so long 
and pain, it was so painstaking of a process and took so long to hand write a copy of the Bible that they were so expensive, most people couldn't afford to have one. We take for granted the fact that we own a copy of the Bible. And I want to encourage you, don't take it for granted. There are people in the world today who would give everything they have if they could have a copy of the Bible. And they wouldn't let it sit on their, the shelf in their home collecting dust. They would read it every day because they, they want the truth so badly. They're like the Queen of Sheba. I read a story once in a book called The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. And it tells the story of this man who was in an explosion and he was blinded. And he also lost both of his hands. And what he was so disappointed in is that he had recently become a Christian before he experienced that explosion. And he wanted to be able to read the Bible. But now his eyesight's gone. And his hands are gone. He can't even use his hands to read Braille. So how can he ever read the Bible? He heard about this woman over in England who had learned to read Braille with her, her lips. And so he ordered a copy of the Bible in Braille and he thought, okay, I'll teach myself to read the Bible using my lips. But when he put his lips on the raised characters, he discovered that his lips were so impaired through that explosion that there was no, the nerve endings were gone and he couldn't even feel the sensation. So he was extremely disappointed. But just by accident, his tongue touched the, the characters. And he, he felt that he knew that he could distinguish the characters through his tongue. And so he taught himself to read the Bible just using his tongue. And by the time that book by Donald Whitney was written, this guy had read through the entire Bible four times using his tongue. Now that puts us to shame who maybe have never read the Bible through ourselves. And we've got two eyeballs that work. What I'm saying is ask God to increase your hunger for his word. And, and not even so much books about the Bible, but for the Word of God itself, so that you're in the Scriptures on a daily basis, letting them feed your soul. Going through the Word, looking for God to speak to you through the Word. So there's the first example, the Queen of the South. Second example is the Ninevites. They were quick to repent as soon as God's Word came to them. Is that true about us? Are we quick to repent like they were when God's word comes to us? In the men's study just this last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, can't remember now, but we're reading in the book of James, chapter 4. And there, in James, James says, Humble yourself, mourn and weep, let your sorrow, your joy be turned to sorrow. And, and there he's saying, that you have embraced the world. There in James 4, right around verse 4. He says, you adulteresses, you love the world. Rather, you should mourn and humble yourself and weep and let your laughter be turned into gloom. What James is saying is exactly what we see in the Ninevites. When God's word came to the Ninevites, they fasted, they put sackcloth on, they repented before God. When God shows you a word, let's say he shows you that you've become worldly. Maybe the entertainment of the world or the priorities of the world or the philosophy of the world has come into your heart and he shows you that. Are you quick to repent and humble yourself before him like the Ninevites? So, number one, do we have a hunger for God's word? 
Number two, are we quick to repent when God convicts us of something? And then number three, here's the third example, and this is a negative one, the example of the religious leaders. They demanded signs. They continued on persistently in willful unbelief. Is that anybody's, is anybody like them today that's here? You've, you've never chosen to give your life to Christ. Even though you have all the light, all the evidence, all the signs you need, you know that it's true that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead, but yet you don't want to believe because it's going to mean that you're going to have to submit your life to his lordship. That's the example we have from the religious leaders. And if that's the case, there are many other people who are going to rise up on the day of judgment and condemn you because perhaps they never owned a Bible. Perhaps they didn't have the light that you have. They're from some other country where they had very little light. But here we are here in America with churches on every corner practically and access to computers with internet with all kinds of information that we could have at our disposal if we just wanted it. But yet we don't want it. And so we go on day after day after day shunning the light, putting a basket over it, putting the candle down in the cellar, closing the door because we don't want to deal with that light. So here are the things I, I see the Lord challenging us with. A hunger for the word, quickness to repent of sin, and the negative one is choosing to go on in unbelief. So that, that the final one's a sin. The first two are virtues that the Lord wants to develop in our own hearts and lives. Let's pray and then let's, let's talk to each other in small groups and pray for each other that whatever the Lord has been putting on our heart from, from this text this morning, that we will apply this week. Okay? Father, we do pray that you would pinpoint in our lives what it is that you're wanting to do in us. Whether it's a greater spiritual hunger, whether it is a, a quickness to repent, or whether it's shunning a life of unbelief and surrendering our life to Jesus Christ. So Lord, show us by your Spirit what that is and let us take action today to change that. In Jesus' name, amen.